You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Empire and Ecologies, Trans-Imperial, Trans-Historical and Trans-Regional Natures from the 17th to the 21st century. This symposium took place on the 1st and 2nd of July 2021 and was funded by the UCD Humanities Institute's seed funding scheme and the European Research Council through the South Hem Project. Panel 3, Ancient Nature and Modern Imagination, was convened and chaired by Giacomo Savani and Matthew Mandich and featured Svetlana Hautala, who presented on as already Dioscorides knew, on the afterlives of ancient botany. Christopher Schlepeke presented on Water Ecologies and the Persian Empire, from Herodotus to Wittfogel, and Matthew Mandich, who presented on Imperialism, Extraction and the Economy, Recreating Rome in the Early United States. My name is Giacomo Savani and I'm a, an IRC postdoctoral fellow at the School of Classics here at UCD. It's a great pleasure today to introduce the final session of the day, Ancient Nature and Modern Imagination. I would like to thank Megan and Sarah on behalf of my co-chair, Matthew Mandich, and myself for their incredible job in organizing this event, which has been truly fantastic so far. So this panel looks at the classical roots of imperialistic approaches to nature, asking questions about the ways Greek and Roman texts shape early modern and modern understanding of an interaction with the natural world. By re-examining ancient perception of nature, power, and power over nature, nature, our speakers reveal how these ideas were adopted, adapted, and re-elaborated to classify, to, to classify newly discovered specimens, to justify the control over certain resources, or to emphasize the link between extractivism and wealth. I'm going to introduce our first speaker, Svetlana Hautala, who will then give a brief overview of our paper, you know, adding some uh, discussion and uh, following some of the threads that she uh, picked up on the during her paper. So Svetlana is a classicist working at the University of Ulu in Finland. She's trained as a cultural in, in cultural anthropology with a doctorate in anthropology of the ancient world. She's also a member of the research group Antropologia del Mondo Antico of the University of Siena. Svetlana has worked extensively on ancient medicine and the role of plants and animals in the Greco-Roman world. Her more recent publications include Corpi altrui corpi propri, il teatro di prova della, uh, della sfera medico-curativa antica, and the chapter Plants in the edited volume The World, the World Through Roman Eyes. Her paper for this conference was entitled As Already Dioscorus New on the Afterlives of Ancient Botany. Svetlana. Thank you very much, and thanks to to conference organizers. I will be very brief. I mean, and the, the story I'm telling here is about a project that has been done for centuries, but still without material accomplishment. In order to identify a plant, we compared its appearance with information about it, its name, details of its growth. Its properties, beneficial or not, etc. <clears throat> All cultures on the globe preserve somehow this information. 
in the form of material records or in the memory of special people dealing with plants in any society. If we choose to take a look at this activity historically from the point of view of the famous laundry, we will see firstly that the structure of this card, material or not, or conceptual in the memory, is quite similar everywhere. And secondly, how some lines is in the, this structure were changed by the intervention of different hands by someone's will. The most important change after centuries and centuries of records and reproduction of information about plants is the attention that appeared around the time of the Enlightenment in, in Europe to the number of stamens and pistols in flowers, to the reproductive apparatus of plants, which became the main basis for the classification of modern botany. As William Stern wrote in a famous article published in the 80s, thank God Linnaeus never went to the tropics himself, but preferred to create his system from home, working with printed herbaria compiled by others, often at the cost of their lives. Many botanists died in the tropics in, in the bloom of youth from unfamiliar diseases and travel hazards. Carlos Ney remained safe at home and mankind received a botanical classification system. But there is one more point that I would like to mention in this brief introduction. It seems that in this card of a plant, one can write everything and absolutely everything that concerns this plant should be written. But this is not true. There are aspects that, uh, that are simply unnoticed, namely, uh, for example, the number of stamens and pistols. They simply do not matter before. And on the contrary, there is information which they don't want to be spread as in the example I took in my presentation of the pickle flower. This plant is incorporated into <clears throat> botanical knowledge, but its ability to induce abortion is censored. Linnaeus knows this plant and gives it a place among others in his system. For his purposes, all other information about the plant is irrelevant. If we too try not to be distracted by details, you will notice how the card of this plant, which certainly existed before the arrival of the Europeans, has changed. Stamens and pistols were inscribed in it, and amortization properties were deleted. In fact, this is an epitome of colonialism translated into the botanical code. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Svetlana. Um, I will now be uh, introducing our uh, second speaker to uh, also give a synopsis of his paper. Um, moving on to uh, Christopher Schribake. He's an ancient historian working at the University of uh, Augsburg. He's one of the most prominent scholars in ancient environmental studies, working at the intersection between literature, ancient history, and archaeology. His recent groundbreaking book, The Environmental Humanities in the Ancient World, offers new perspectives to think about what directions the ecological turn could take in classical studies. His paper for this conference was entitled Water Ecologies and the Persian Empire, from Herodotus to Whitfogel. 
Thank you very much, Christopher, and take it away. Hey, many thanks for this very kind introduction. I'm, I'm not going to give you a summary of my uh, YouTube presentation, but I want to pick up on a few points and observations that I've attempted in my paper and to bring them together with, with uh, some of the key questions that I found in the original event description. My comments are not to be taken as straight answers and solutions. They're certainly not, but they're meant to inspire debate. I have highlighted here some of those terms that I find particularly uh, important. The overall topic of the conference made me think uh, back, uh, you know, of a, or about a computer game that I loved to play as a child, or rather as a teenager, uh, when it was about 12 or 13 years old, uh, namely Age of Empires. It's a strategy game that brought together different ancient civilizations from Mesopotamia and the Mediterranean world and invited different approaches to winning the game. You could either try to conquer and sort of wipe out your opponents, or you could follow a more, let's say, peaceful approach and construct a magnificent building that would last 100 years in the logic of the game. No matter what kind of strategy you chose, it was of utmost importance to use the resources of the game world wisely. You had to make sure that your respective civilization was well-equipped with food, timber, stone, and gold sources of which could be found everywhere on the map. You had to manage them, defend them, fight for them, etc. One of the interesting features of the game, I thought, was that every civilization was different, with strengths and weaknesses. The Egyptians were particularly good at mining gold. They got more out of their gold quarries and faster. The Phoenicians were good at chopping wood, the Babylonians at working stone, and so on and so forth. Why do I begin with this particular example? Because the game, The Age of Empires, taught me a great deal about history. It taught me that all great empires had sort of started out with more or less the same conditions. They all shared the same world, but depending on how they used the resources of this world, the kind of technologies they developed, etc., they would either thrive or be doomed to fail. This turned every game that I ever played in Age of Empires into an experiment of a kind of social Darwinism, survival of the fittest. Now, I no longer share this view of history, but I'm convinced that it is deeply entrenched in any imperial ideology, and its strong economic underpinnings can be found in the discipline of ecology to this day. A game like Age of Empires made me think of the non-human world as a storehouse of sorts, one that had to be used, transformed, in order to be successful. The more your respective civilization thrived, the more the natural world disappeared. And in the game's twisted logic, this was another lesson at some point during the game, almost all of the natural resources that could be found on the map had more or less disappeared. This taught me natural resources are not inexhaustible and no empire is self-sustained. Now, the resource that I talked about in my pre-recorded presentation, namely water, does not play a role in Age of Empires. But this particular resource and its use has arguably played a more prominent role in the history of empires than any other natural resource. Water has, in the form of seas and rivers, both connected different parts of the world and separated them at the same time. Access to water was and is of utmost importance to both pastoral people and farmers. Providing a good sanitation infrastructure and building magnificent waterworks is, up to this day, one of the central fields of action for any political body or system. In the early modern age, imperial courts all over Europe looked back to the ancient civilizations in awe of the water management and technologies that have not been surpassed up to this point. It is also here in the circles of these courts 
where we can find a lot of theories that stress the age-old relationship between hydraulic or water engineering and political power. Carl August Wittfogel built on many of these uh, theories to formulate his theory of the hydraulic society and later in an anti-communist version of an oriental despotism. He claimed that irrigation systems, the bigger they got, would everywhere lead to a more highly developed social system with a centralized form of control. He also claimed that the centralized form of water management was the origin of despotism, a despotism associated with the high cultures outside of Europe. Now, we could devote an entire conference uh, to Wittfogel and his theory and never really arrive at an end of discussion. This is not what I want to do here uh, today. I want rather to draw a connection with the game I had talked about earlier, Age of Empires. In Age of Empires, you see all the action from a bird's eye perspective. You, as the player, oversee everything. In a way, Wittfogel's theory, at least in the very basic and very much simplified form that I talk about it here, takes on a similar viewpoint. It is very much a history based on a top-down perspective. The way a modern game like Age of Empires imagines the use of resources and the way that Wittfogel frames the bureaucratic, centralized control over water has a tendency to overlook the local, if you will, subaltern ways of self-regulation that we can find in irrigation systems. It is here where we can trace some of those complex forms of agency, resistance, and autonomy that are addressed in the event description. This is to say that there's no simple causality between empire and ecology, between resource use and political power. What we're dealing with are successions of interrelations. And this brings me to another major point. These interconnections do not merely concern what resources are used and how, but it, it involves the social-cultural sphere as well. As I tried to make clear in my pre-recorded presentation, resources do not solely exist in a material form, they are also greatly attached to the human world of self-representation and symbolical meaning. Water in this sense is both a material as well as a mental resource. In my presentation, I had argued that the first prominent prose author in the Western tradition, Herodotus, draws on the water element in exactly this way. He was very much interested in the technologies that the civilizations and communities of his world had developed to use and manage water systems. But he was also interested in the meanings they attached to the water element. In this context, it is illuminating to look at the passages where Herodotus discusses the ways in which the Persian Empire, and especially the great king, deal with water. Not only do we learn that a special kind of water of a Persian river is carried along with the king no matter where he goes. We also learn that the great king instructs his servants to whip the indignant waters of the Hellespont when he tries to cross it with his army. These passages establish a strong opposition between the Persians on the one hand and the Greeks on the other hand in both a sociocultural as well as a religious sense. Herodotus is also the first writer to establish a differentiation between rain-fed agriculture, as it exists in the Greece of his own time, and the irrigation systems in Mesopotamia or the inundation cycles in Egypt. Different environmental conditions lead to different ways of being in the world. The histories are therefore also the first fully developed account of what we now call environmental determinism. As such, they had and still hold a central place in how empires have been understood in the course of history, and also in how imperial systems have read and interpreted their respective other. Any representation of otherness 
entails the danger of misreading and misinterpretation. Herodotus does not mention the high degree of autonomy and self-regulation that local communities had in the Persian Empire. Neither does he refer uh, at any length to the most important feature of central uh, Persia's water ecology, namely the Kanaan underground channels used to transport water to the surface for irrigation and drinking. Here's an ancient technology that is still in use today, one that could well see a renaissance in many other places in the world as our climate gets hotter and drier. Now, Herodotus probably never heard of these systems, but he nonetheless presents his audience with an account of a complex canal system used for economic benefit by the Persian great king. As Howe and Wells note in their 1912 commentary on, the, on this passage, it seems to be purely imaginative. But as they say, the idea is quite correct. The control of irrigation is in the East, one of the prerogatives of government, and great sums are charged for the use of water." End quote. Here's an argument predating Wittfogel's theory. And this is my final point. The history of empire has been shaped time and again, not solely by, by a polarization between nature and culture, but also by a polarization between East and West, based on arguments relating to resource use. It would be a worthwhile task to further trace these forms of what we might term eco-Orientalism in the history of environmentalism and ecological thought. Thank you for your attention. I look forward to the discussion. Thank you, Christopher. And finally, our third speaker and co my co-chair, uh, Matthew Mandich. Uh, Matthew holds a PhD in Roman archaeology from the University of Leicester in the UK and is currently undertaking a master's at the University of San Francisco in urban and public affairs. His interests focus on the comparative study of ancient and modern urbanism, cities and empires. He's especially interested in exploring how humans can live together in environmentally, economically and socially responsible ways. His publications include the recent article, Ancient City, Universal Growth, Exploring the Urban Expansion and Economic Development on Rome's Eastern Periphery. Matthew's paper for this conference was entitled Imperialism, Extraction and the Economy, Recreating Rome in the Early United States. To you, Matthew. Thanks so much, Giacomo, and uh, thanks everyone for being here today. Uh, I'll just do a quick little um, kind of summary of, of my talk here. And um, yeah, just as a, as a precursor, definitely coming from this, from the Roman side of things, as Giacomo mentioned in my intro, I'm a Roman archaeologist, but also pursuing, um, you know, more contemporary studies and urban studies right now. Um, so seeing myself kind of more as an as an urbanologist than an archaeologist as uh, as things are evolving here. But um, uh, anyway, just to jump right into it, um, my talk kind of began with really focusing on like, what is a city? and looking beyond the sum of its parts and looking at all, you know, just reminding that there's so many invisible transactions, interactions, knowledge spillovers, labor that goes into forming cities and that the physical manifestations of cities that we see in skylines today um, are really much all coming from the earth, you know, and there's a cost to everything that we see, whether that cost is environmental, physical, economic, whatever, there's a cost and there's an extraction that occurred um, bringing plate people and place and items from other places into one location. So that's just kind of like a little bit of the background on the city there that I was kind of jumping off from and reminding that this is happening, you know, in the past and in the present, um, and that cities and empires are a great way to look at the human impact on the environment as kind of like a lens to do that through. Um, so starting with ancient Rome, um, looking at that as the, the ancient metropolis that it was, all those features that are very familiar to us today that the city had. Um, and also looking at um, its early expansion. So as the city expands, its hinterland expands too. 
Um, and we're looking, you know, kind of like walked through the expansion in the early period from a regional level, hegemonic expansion in Italy, um, beyond to the peninsula as well, and then throughout the entire Mediterranean by the mid-Republican period to the late Republic, and then the imperial period where Rome reaches its maximum extent. Um, reminding again that Rome is very much the center of this empire, um, very much a place that is the, the heart where a lot of goods are coming through through various marketing systems um, coming back to Rome. A lot's coming from the expansion of Rome into the provinces, into areas where there are a lot of resources, such as you know the, the age of empires that Christopher just mentioned, um, and bringing those back into the city. Um, so this, of course, had you know a very large impact uh, on the environment, even in the uh, in the ancient world and antiquity. Um, you know, I think a lot of people want to talk about kind of the large scale impacts that humans have had on the environment from a more recent perspective, maybe even the last 500 years, which I think is definitely a fine approach. And there's there's a lot more to go on there. But I think it's also important to remember that there's a lot of ancient precedents for kind of the imperial and environmental ecological degradation that we've been seeing over the past 500 years and in the present as well. That goes back a little bit further as well. And it's worth mentioning. So I bring up some some quotes um, there about especially from Pliny, who's um, active in the first century AD, who's written a lot about extraction and mining uh, in the Roman world. And he discusses also hydraulic mining and the impacts that that had on um, you know, erosion, on the extension of coasts, on pollutions of river, on the release of toxins, and on these kind of like lunar landscapes that are created um, in the ancient world uh, due to uh, this heavy extraction that was occurring due to hydraulic mining, which was, is a very, a very messy and heavy uh, form of mining. Um, so looking at those impacts a little bit more, I flesh those out kind of with some images that we can still see today, especially in Spain and Greece, where regions continue to be polluted, continue to have uh, exposed mountain faces from this kind of sluice mining that was occurring. And then also um, just heavy deforestation and desertification of certain regions in the Mediterranean due to uh, mining activities, which require, of course, a lot of timber. Um, so having discussed that, kind of moving along to um, the the... United States example and the new urban system that begins to develop there after the U.S. Um, is gains its independence in 1776. Um, so again, there's this concept that's already breeding in the U.S. even in in Western Europe at this time about this you know kind of creating a new Rome, like chasing the idea of Rome and this this idea of of what Rome really was and um, is you know of course something that is uh, very subjective and it's kind of been repackaged and retooled in a lot over time, but. Um, something that, you know, is very much in the minds of uh, certain upper class, like, let's say, elite um, colonialists and settlers of the time of that early period expansion in America. New York and Chicago become those dominant centers early on with very large hinterlands stretching off across most of uh, North America. But San Francisco has a time there, too, where as we're seeing the expansion of America to the West, the so-called star of empire moving West. Um, San Francisco itself also kind of fancies itself as fancies itself as a potential imperial capital and a city that can then you know rival Rome and London, New York, and things like that. Um, this is especially influenced by the transport networks, which I talk about, um, and the expanding sort of hinterland of those eastern colonies and now eastern cities uh, in America at the time. So again, there's a great book by Gray Bracken, which I talk about in my presentation called Imperial San Francisco, where he touches on a lot of this theme of kind of you know creating a new imperial capital. Um, out of all of the opportunity and um, that exists in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, especially through the mining in the Sierras and the gold rush that occurs there. Um, you're getting a huge influx of capital 
um, from um, the earth there, which allows these cities to grow and especially San Francisco to grow without being so dependent on the banking systems of Chicago and New York on the East Coast. So it does give them their autonomy. It does give them their own hinterland. And so San Francisco definitely for a time really feels like it has a push to be this new Rome. Um, and there's a lot of parallels going on with the mining that's occurring in the hinterland um, that, of course, was occurring also in the Roman world, especially in the provinces and especially you know, outside of um, the general zone, like the, the immediate zone of the city. But of course, there's a lot of environmental impacts from that. Hydraulic mining went to a whole new level in this period in the gold rush. The San Francisco Bay itself, too, got choked up with lots of sediments, brown and gold clouds like stretching out into the Pacific Ocean from the bay. So um, there's some really heavy environmental impacts that are still felt today. Um, especially in the Sierras in Northern California. And, I, you know, I highlight some of that in my talk and, you know, you know some images there. Um, but I think the key thing that, you know, coming back to, too, is um, to look at as well as, you know, was, were these cities new rooms and what was this idea and what was people chasing? And, you know, it's really interesting because um, at the end of the day, uh, not many of those people would have ever been to Rome. They would have had very little contact with anyone that had ever been to Rome. Most of the knowledge was second, third, fourth-hand knowledge trickling back from, um, you know, the antiquariums of the, of the Grand Tour, uh, these so-called chicharrone that were giving, um, you know, these very erudite elite uh, British males uh, a certain perspective based on, you know, really what they were gleaning off the physical remains of the city. Um, so this whole idea of Rome is very much something that is kind of like made up. And just to touch on that a little bit more, you know, I was watching TV the other night and I stumbled upon Gladiator on television, which... As a Roman archaeologist, if it's on, you're watching. I mean, it's just what it is. So <laughs> and I was watching and there was a scene that caught my attention again about um, how they talk, you know, Maximus's character played by Russell Crowe is so, you know, obsessed with defending Rome and, you know, the glory of Rome and all this stuff. Yet he's never been there until he's a gladiator. You know, his ancestors were conquered by Romans. And it's like, why are you obsessed with Rome? Like what's and I think that's kind of cool that they play with that. And they, they do talk about it in a little bit of the film, too, about you know, what is this idea of Rome that you're so obsessed with, like preserving and maintaining and stuff? And and it's kind of like the same idea, um, you know, in this expansionist colonial period in America, too, like this idea of Rome and like how big it is and, you know, what's the right thing to do and how do you achieve that? And, you know, mining is is a huge, a huge part of that. And, uh, you know, Gray Brecken talks about this as well and talking about um, some precedents with Lewis Mumford, too, about this mega machine of mining and the pyramid of mining and how mining really drives so much. Um, you know, technological mechanization, it drives finance, money-making, it drives, um, just trying to remember all the different points of the pyramid now, um, but um, just uh, basically those those key things right there that, that mining has become something that um, is used to support this expansion and to bring in this, you know, ever-consuming capital, but those resources, again, Christopher's talk about Age of Empire, I think, is really perfect there. They expire after time, and there's impacts to continually going back for these things that um, can be used in all these invisible transactions I was talking about earlier to create these cities and make them go. Um, so I think, yeah, that's pretty much how my, my talk was uh, laid out. And um, I think the thing that I wanted to discuss more, and I'm just going to share screen really quickly here because I had this um, slide up already. Um, and this was just one of the kind of the, the questions that I wanted to focus on from the conference, but I'm happy to discuss a lot of different things. But I think it just goes back to this, you know, to what extent do the political and ethical questions illuminated um, by the impacts of imperial ecology further our understanding of contemporary, and I can't even see the question right there because my thing's over it, but <laughs> political and economical crises in the context of rapid technological change. And I think 
just this slide here shows that how so much what we're doing right now, everything that we're built on is again, goes back to mining and all this technology and money making um, goes back to this kind of impact that we have on the earth and everything's built on top of that. And I think that's something that's been going on for a really long time um, and worth discussing more as we kind of enter into this new era of more acute environmental awareness and of our ecological impacts that humans have on the globe and the sustained impacts of those reaching back to the ancient world as well. So um, I think I'll just leave it there and uh, look forward to discussing with everyone more. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matt. I think we have some really interesting themes that came out from the presentation and also the, 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 the summaries, the overviews given by the speakers um, now. I mean, we, we've seen some significant example of the influence of classical ideas about nature and in the in the modern world uh, we have seen Svetlana showing how early modern botanists were very keen to maintain the ancient approach to the bot botanical classification expanding and combining record cards with all the new information but also something that she she, she really stressed uh, today was this idea of really neglecting um, native knowledge of plants which is something extremely fascinating because it, it was happening at a very large scale, and that actually, where um, the Royal Society was actually opposing any kind of uh, inclusion of this form of information in reports from botanists, basically. And uh, Christopher, on the other hand, has been talking about Herodotus, obviously, and the impact that this work had on the, you know, the, his description of the Persian Empire and the way it dealt with the water had an impact on our model for um, modern conceptualization of Oriental despotism, but also. He also mentioned Age of Empire, which is something that probably very many of us are familiar with, and it kind of that it kind of embodies somehow the way we tend to conceptualize empires in general. So uh, we need to be very very aware of this form of you know th th this preconception that we have about how an empire should work. You know the the kind of extractivism phase, and then the the, the expanding um, the expanding the territory. So they did all these elements that seems to be quite mechanic in a sense, and instead are much more nuanced than what they actually appear. And finally, Matthews, Matthews, in the Matthews paper, we have seen 19th century colonists idealizing ancient Rome. And uh, he, he mentioned this obsession with Rome, which is really actually very, very powerful, very widespread. And uh, during the old, early modern and modern period, I guess. So, uh, so the, the Rome became the model, and but also a way to justify the westward expansion of the American Empire and the rise of the city of San Francisco. So, I'm going to open now the floor for questions and comments. Uh, I've seen that we already have one from one of the uh, from from the audience. So, from, so I'm going to uh, answer live. I guess that's what I need to do. Yeah. So this is for Christopher and Matthew and uh, um, Helen Dixon from UCD asks, do you think that ancient empires relied more on a controlled possession, so, sorry, on controlled possession of space or natural resources? So it's again, that question about what is really is the, um, the, 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 the most important uh, element in the, in the construction of, and, the, and the, the success of an empire. Um, well, I'll just jump right right in, I guess, first, because I was just last talking. And I think that's a great question because, you know, this is something that I was trying to drive through with the hinterland um, kind of a point of view and looking at the cantado, basically, and just um, the surroundings of a city in that, that space. So I think that from my perspective and the way that I've looked at the growth of Rome 
um, is constantly through kind of like hinterland development. And so space, I would say, is key. Resources then, of course, dictate where space moves, though, right? So if certain certain resources are discovered, certain areas, this, that, and the other, that can kind of dictate which direction that the control of that space is going or how or what space we're trying to get. But I think it, at the be at the end of the day that the space becomes um, the thing that I think is most desired by the empires, and then what's in that space can then be managed after that. Um, so that that's kind of the approach that I would take to it. But I'm happy to hear Christopher's thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I, I, I mean, this is this is a great comment, Matthew, and I can only um, sort of support it. Uh, my, my thought would be um, that we probably have to, you know, going back to to some of the arguments that I uh, that I made, we would probably have to differentiate also between different sort of conception conceptualizations, you know, of empire. I mean, when we look at the Athenian Empire and then later the Roman Empire, but also uh, everything that came between, in between, sort of the Hellenistic age, uh, let's say a, a country like Egypt. If you, if you look at the at the Ptolemy, uh, the Ptolemies, how, how they sort of managed their, uh, let's say their 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 economy. You know, this was very interesting because it was like, uh, you know, the uh, like Egypt is this kind of, you know, this country with the Nile flowing through it, but but it's it is sort of, you know, very. Uh, closed off in a way by by sort of the desert and and and, and the mountain areas, and uh, it, it doesn't have a lot of silver, for instance. And the Ptolemies were, as far as I know, the only really the only big power in, in Hellenistic uh, times that that had like it really completely its own coinage, you know, based on sort of the the access to to for instance silver and but also to gold and and bronze. And I think there's always an interplay between. Um, you know, kind of the spatial the dimensions of an imperial uh, imperial systems, and as Matthew said, also the resources that are in it, and then to somehow manage, you know, your politics uh, according to to these different parameters. But I think it it there's no easy answer here. I think we would really have to look at the different um, the different cultures on the one hand, but also the different, I guess, ages. <laughs> the ages of empire uh, in the ancient world, um, and and how big that world was. I mean, this is also an Im- important question here, of course. I mean, what what are the, the sort of the the cultural uh, sort of understandings of of certain limits as well? I think this is also important here. So this this is where like this other uh, aspect that I talked about comes in. So this cultural narratives about. Um, about really space, not only in a, in a material sense, but also really as a cultural construct, as a social construct. Yeah. For sure, just to add one more, and I don't wanna to take too much time on this because I know there are other questions, but just to add on to that a little bit more too, um, thinking about that, that pyramid of mining I was speaking about a little bit earlier, the Gray Brecken's concept that, that mining drives, um, you know, technology, money-making, the other one was the military that I was trying to remember. And I think that's key for what we're talking about here as well, because so many of um, these kind of realms and these spaces, as Christopher was saying, like especially in the ancient world, being confined by geology and being confined by geography and things like that, that that drive for technology. Once there's like an idea that there's a resource there, that there's something else there, you know, that's when that kick in of like let's go get that through developing new ships, through developing new transport networks, through developing a stronger military that you know sends out into that space a little bit more and. It like you know that's that drive to create new technologies that can let's say the the word that's coming to my head is superare in Italian but that can like 
overcome, you know, these sort of obstacles that we're seeing within these empires too. So just another kind of like side to it all. But yeah, no, it's a, I think we could talk about something like that for a really long time. It's a tough, tough question to answer like succinctly. Thank you very much. So um, we now have a question from Svetlana by Megan Kassler. So the question is, could you, could you speak more about how the distance and the proximity of plants from the everyday experience of those who terrorize them impacts on the chains of transmission of information about plants? Thank you very much for this question. It's a great one, but it's very difficult because because we, we um, well, it's difficult to, to respond even for today uh, at, at Nabotnia. And so it's much more difficult for the deaf cultures. So we, we have only, only fragments of, 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 of sources. And um, well, um, some, some stories, some a fragment of, of information. But uh, what we can see instead is this collectiveness and interconnectedness of, of different different levels of knowledge, of different of expertise also, and very very different um, languages also and interconnectedness across countries, yes. Um, I have a question, if I may, if I may to, to make you. you. You quoted Pliny on these consequences, devastating consequences of human activity on, on nature. Did the Americans imitate it in this kind of thinking also the ancients or not? This presence is our great tunberry. For sure. So that's a, that's a great question too, and it's an interesting one because um, you know other other scholars have talked about this issue of kind of like this concept of environmentalism in in the ancient world, and you know Pliny Pliny's um, his, his the way he speaks is is a lot of observation, and I'm I'm forgetting the author that that pointed this particular thing out, but. It's, you know, a lot of the ancient world, when they're talking about environmentalism, they're mostly talking about individuals and whether you're doing things good or bad. And it's more, it's a little bit more political and it's about people and it's not such a, like a big picture thing. It's like, you know, you've done this, that's negative. You've done this, that's positive. And it's, you know, it's a little bit more back and forth and, and political. Whereas, um, you know, but I think that nonetheless, there was this underlying concept of a wider environmentalism in Pliny's writing. Um, but there's a lot of debate about, you know, what, you know, was he going after people individually or was it a bigger concept? And then to, to, to say in the American context, yes, there were a lot of criticisms of what was going on at that time that have been dug out. But again, a lot of them were totally ignored. You know, they're like the opinion pieces in the Chronicle from the early 1900s where they're like, we're totally destroying this area. We're totally destroying our, our habitat. Like this has to stop. Earth is not, you know, something to be exploited by humans. But you know that's all shoved to the side, and you know the people that are doing the exploitation, especially for example, like the Hearst family, uh, the Licks, these big powerful families in in mm -hmm. California. You know they're doing what they're going to do regardless. Um, so yes, there. I think there's always been this like background understanding of the effects of these uh, and the ecological impacts created by these extractive processes. Um, 
but a lot of the times they're ignored. And I think that's kind of, you know, how it is even today, right? You know, there's, of course there's voices, but a lot of people maybe don't want to hear. And even when it comes to the, to the meat industry, especially you can get into a lot of like really heated debates mm -hmm. with people very quickly about choices and, and, you know, and just different industries and their impacts and how aware we are of those and, you know, how much we value that product over its impact and whatnot. So yeah, to short answer your question, I, it's hard to say if that was going on to the degree um, in the ancient world that it was today, but definitely more so in um, in the early, you know, the late 1800s in America and mm -hmm. 1900s for sure. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I know that Christopher is actually working right now on uh, on this topic. So I was wondering if you wanted to add something on, you know, the concept of environmentalism in antiquity, which is very, mm -hmm. It's very slippery, very tricky. So, oh yeah, it is. It is indeed, uh, but it's something that that I that I've been thinking about for for a long time, and um, I'm, I still haven't, you know, kind of reached any kind of convincing, uh, let's say, um, conclusion. I think that environmentalism in general. I mean, you know, again, you have to think about how you define certain terms. Like I've been thinking about how to defer, uh, how to define sustainability and environmentalism and environmental mm -hmm. awareness and all of these things. I mean, this is important here, you know, the, this aspect of, of definition. But I think uh, in a way that environmentalism was more, or let's say, in, let's say an environmental awareness uh, was, was in general more widespread than we have acknowledged, um, especially if we look into... The documentary evidence that we have, certain laws, inscriptions, uh, even you know oracle tablets uh, that we have that that have a certain kind of environmental um, or ecological, let's say, you know, uh, connotation. It's not like they they have like a like an agenda of environmental protection. I mean, this would be a, a crude kind of anachronism, but. What what always what I always come back to in a way when I when I think about environmental awareness is how important it must have been, and this is just you know something that I'm that I'm thinking about um, how important it must have been to be really aware of of the signs that you find in nature to anticipate mm -hmm. certain events and things. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, something that you would find in divinatory practice and concepts like sympathia and all of these things. These you know these these very elaborate kind of theories of how things connect and 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 how you can also from certain signs from the the observation of birds of, of fish of uh, of trees and the like can kind of try to anticipate certain events in the future that are potentially harmful i mean of course, what what an actor or you know a group of actors that comes into play for for the ancient mindset would be the gods, you know, right? Uh, uh, but um, but if we you know and and I mean this is important not not to be anachronistic about about these these whole practices and we have to sort of be aware of of this that you know that there was always this triangle. It's never just the humankind on the one hand, nature on the other. Uh, but there's also a third kind of very important um, sort of element here. But still, I think this was, uh, you know, this this keen observation of things going on around you. This was certainly, you know, in these kind of agricultural uh, systems that we're talking about, this was central for survival, much, much more so than it is now. I mean, maybe it's coming back mm -hmm. <laughs> in a way. 
because you know the resource use and, and so on and so forth that has you know i mean this is going to to change in the next 50 to 100 years if it, if it hasn't already you know changed in a way if we think of mm-hmm. petrol culture and all of this but um but yeah i think that that this would be you know it's not it's not a straight answer to your question i'm afraid but this is kind of the the angle that i kind of try to look at and pursue at the moment to be perfectly honest with you you know this these interrelationships between observing and anticipating. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks. That was really fascinating. I just uh, wanted to come back a little bit to a theme that I think is very important considering the, the, some of the other aspects that came out today during the, 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 the previous panels. I mean, as, uh, I was intrigued in, by, by the reference that Svetlana made in our uh, presentation uh, to Bernardino de Sahuna, Historia General de las Cosas de la Nueva España, um, also known as the Florentine Codex. So what is really interesting about this, um, this object, this, this, this book, this uh, codex, is that it was a, a truly collective enterprise. And uh, this was probably completely around 1590. And uh, the interesting thing is that the knowledge gathering in this book was actually was coming from the locals and was coming from natives. And even the illustration of the codex were drawn by native artists. So I was wondering if you could tell us something more about it and, and also about the influence of ancient authors uh, like Aristotle and Pliny on the, this work and other similar works of the 16th and 17th century. Um, and if there were any parallels to find, you know, parallel, attempt to find parallels, sorry, between the plans of the Americans and those described in ancient authors. Thank you very much. It's, it's a very uh, central question. But uh, as far as I know, um, no, the encyclopedia of Bernardino de Sagun is completely pure and clear and uncontaminated un- by Aristotle and Pliny. And th- this is why it's so beautiful. This is why it's so other and so. So excited this this um, project. The same are the protocols, the questionnaires, which uh, uh, for Dioscorides and and him uh, in, in Mexico. Yes, it is. It is true that the same. But um, this question is also central to the practice of the European who uh, discovered the Americas and see mm, many plants for the first time in their lives. And they are not su- surprised because they, they bring Aristotelian Pliny with them. And there is so much of Aristotelian Pliny in the eyes of those who, for instance, they, they meet the um, tobacco plant, which is absolutely unseen before, plant using in absolute un- unheard of way, but still they remember that some ancient geographers describe the citizens who inhale the smoke of marijuana. They are not su- surprised, uh, never. Also true that there is another aspect that they, in all this concern, the Renaissance, uh, the 16th century, 
they never um, go to the mainland the tropics they remained in the uh, fisher and uh, the trees which uh, this is a very famous example that the trees on the seashells are very like to the European trees. And then it was found that they are brought from Europe, in fact, with uh, ships in ports. So when uh, uh, the time of the Enlightenment, um, there is a very often quoted letter of Alexander von Humboldt to his brother and when he he was the, for the first time in the tropics and he was mad of this variety of 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 these um plants that he he never saw before and by the, that time um, the end of the 8th, 18th century uh, Aristotle doesn't help anymore because of tropics, because of tropical plants. Uh, but before, yes, before it's it's all Aristotle. <laughs> Any more question from the audience? So I I'll take the lead again. And uh, to just to come back a bit to the to this idea of you know destructing this destroying extracting and uh, leaving behind a, just a. <coughs> dust and scars. Um, I was really impressed by, by looking at the Matthew's presentation by these images of uh, Spain and Greece that where even today we can st still see the signs of these act ancient extractive activities. And uh, it's very striking that you know the Romans didn't really do much to prevent these environmental consequences of mining in their provinces. But on the other hand, there seems to have been an awareness of this negative effect of, of, of this. And so you mentioned this, this, um, this attempt to prevent mining in Italy. So to keep that kind of extractivist activity outside the core of the empire. So recall this clearly recalls contemporary Western strategies and practices to reduce greenhouse gas emission at home by importing heavily polluting products like steel and cement from countries with limited environmental legislations, something that has been defined as outsourced pollution. And I was wondering if you could say something more about the implication of this strategy in antiquity and the kind of reaction of ancient authors and maybe even some, some sort of your ideas about what is happening now too at the end. Thanks. Sure. Thank you for that, uh, Giacomo. So that's it's an interesting topic you you touch on with the the Senate ban. So Pliny discusses this a couple of times about this this you know ban that the Senate's put in place that's quite ancient on mining in Italy. And there could be a lot of reasons for that ban. It doesn't necessarily have to be going back to environmental and stuff. But I mean, I'm I wouldn't doubt that that didn't factor into it. You know, at least on maybe maybe not as deliberately, but more even a subconscious scale. Regardless, but yeah, obviously the. Extractivism and, and mining is is a very, you know, as we know, dangerous, destructive, and quite brutal process uh, for the earth to undergo. And, you know, the Roman society being quite agrarian, uh, you know, definitely understood mining as being kind of the antithesis of of agrarianism and of agriculture. And there's there's kind of a there's a lot of um I guess discussion in some of the ancient sources kind of in passing um about you know, about this and about how, um, you know, you've got to keep this more, um, 
open account with the earth when it comes to agriculture and there's like back and forth and you're treating the land in a much better way than you are with mining, which is very much um, exploitative and, you know, you're taking something and not putting anything back, you know? Um, so yeah, I think this idea of externalizing costs though, that you bring up about, you know, um, you know, pushing costs to a different area um, is very much, you. that's a great example that you brought up with, um, with today. And then you also have things like cap and trade for environmental, um, um, just uh, legislation in America here and in California where um, you're kind of moving the problem from one area to another really. But um, yeah, so I, I do, externalizing costs was definitely occurring. The provinces were very much seen as a place in which that could totally be done. Um, and yes, there was an idea about preserving Italy and you know keeping it the most pristine, you know, perfect land. Um, but yeah, that's something that evolved too from time. And I think, you know, there was a lot more mining going on in Italy. There's certain coring that continued to go on in Italy but um, especially for marbles and things like that, Carrara up north. But, you know, these areas were pretty like contained and the areas around them too were, you know, they were kind of, you know, abandoned in a way like to to that process. And, you know, you just don't go there mm -hmm. anymore. That's spoiled, right? So, um, yeah. And I think that that was became early to uh, quite apparent at an early stage. And so this desire to externalize those costs um, was there, but also the resources location too and, and whatnot. So I think there's a lot of things going going into that. Um, I'd love to hear actually some of the, the other speakers comments on this. But um, at the end of the day, like it is something that does come home to roost always, I think at the end, like the externalization of costs, like results in further costs to that dominant state, whether that be through, let's say, revolution um, in certain areas where you've, um, you know, like put down a heavy military hand as an empire. Um, and, you know, you've put people in a really difficult posi position. So you, you have revolutions like that, which have costs. And then you have just the exhaustion of resources, which then leads to the exhaustion of, you know, certain financial and economic avenues and certain um, even military avenues and things like that. So there's always the consequences that come home. It just takes a little bit longer for them to work their way back. And just right now, when we're looking, you know, for example, at mining that occurs so much of what we're seeing in the global south. Um, to supply a lot of the technological components for the global mm -hmm. north. There's, you know, huge environmental effects that are global uh, on a global scale from that. And so, you know, it's all coming, it all comes back. So that externalization of costs is putting off the problem for a time, but it really compounds it, I think, in the end. So, um, yeah, interesting on the ancient world, like how heavily that, you know, that's, let's say that slingshot bounced back or not, but um, definitely um, an interesting an interesting topic to discuss further, for sure. Thanks for that question. Thank you. I don't know if Christopher wants to add something on that or. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, this this is in, indeed very, very important. And one, one aspect that we also need to think about, especially with regarding, you know, this kind of uh, discourse that we have a very powerful strand in economic and uh, e uh, environmental thinking now, uh, environmental justice and all these aspects. Um, I mean, there's, Something hasn't been, I think, written yet. I'm not sure whether there, there is a book on it, but we, we don't really have, I think, a major study on um, uh, a history, let's say, of uh, an environmental history of ancient slavery. Um, at least I'm not aware of it. I'm sorry if, if there is. But, you know, this is, of, of course, also an, and such an important factor when we talk about resources, also the human resources. And it's absolutely unimaginable, you know, the, the ancient empires without, you know, taking this into account, especially in the Greco-Roman world, um, you know, this huge economic uh, kind of factor 
uh, that always played a role, and, and that always played a role, I think, in in certain locations that you, that you, Matthew, have pointed at, pointed to. You know, these kind of uh, these regions in Spain and so on and so forth, where we know, you know, that slaves were were working. You know, these mines and um, and dying. I mean, you know, at least, I mean, they had no chance of, of survival. You know, it's also different from certain slaves in like Roman noble like households. Um, so there's also like a, a kind of hierarchy there, and and I think it, it it would be interesting. I mean, one problem is of course that we don't have probably the kind of sources to write like this this environmental history at least at least not from a you know slaves perspective. But but it would be worthwhile to look at this anew, you know, to to think about uh, like the workings of ancient environments with slavery in mind because like the the environmental histories standard accounts that we have they don't mention slaves that often but i think they should be mentioned a lot when we talk about ancient environments and and this is sort of like a, a blind spot i think in in the epistemology in a way yeah, yeah. yeah that's a, that's a very very good point i mean if you think that people were actually sent to die in these mines i mean that was like literally the end of your life if you if you, if you were sentenced to be to, to work in these places, basically, it was a sense a step, that sentence. Damnatio ad metella, or ad metellum, like, you know, damnatio to the mines <laughs> is what they called it. Yeah. And it's it right was, there. yeah, you knew that was a death sentence. I mean, just as bad as being sentenced to the ring. I mean, a couple of years of really tough, tough life and then the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have a final question from the audience, actually. And I think it is an important one and it kind of links to what we were saying. So, um, very brief. As ask to what extent do you think ancient empire showed an aware and, and were aware of or made of sorry i'm gonna start again to what extent do you think ancient empire showed an awareness of or made use of the indigenous knowledge of communities in the territories they control the problem here is always a one of sources of of, mm -hmm. of uh, evidence written evidence because that's always something that quite problematic with the ancient world but I guess maybe in a, in Herodotus there is some some sort of use of local knowledge. Yeah, there's there there's you know it's always a question of how you how you how you see the author, how much fabulation goes into into some of his accounts. I mean, the more uh, distant you know the lands and people become from Ionia, where, where he comes from, um, uh, the more problematic his accounts are in a way, but. I'm not sure. I mean, you would probably also have to differentiate between, you know, the different kind of civilizations you're looking at and and also the time scale, but also, you know, the sources that are available. I mean, it would be interesting to look at. Again, if we if you look at Hellenistic age, if the, the Seleucid Empire and, and Bactria, for instance, you know, it's it's a it's a province that was very sort of like in the most easterly kind of uh, part, let's say, of, of the of the Hellenistic world, and but I'm not sure. I really don't know about like the the local. No, I know that horse breeding was a big thing, and I think that this was also something that that came back in the in the in the early modern age, and and then also in the British Empire. You know, Bactria, which was then you know Afghanistan or parts mm -hmm. parts of those countries where you know sort of the local horse breeding and local horses were very important and i think i think during hellenistic age we we see similar 
tendencies, but I'm not sure here. Um, I mean, this this is a very good question. I don't have an easy answer here. Sorry. I just wanted to say that uh, there is a legendary story about no Roman uh, agricultural uh, other wasn't ashamed to to state to, to make a statement that Roman agricultural uh, science was was born from Carthaginian books. It was a library brought from from Carthage. And there are many others, but they are legendary, anecdotal. We unfortunately we don't have this text. Uh, on that note, actually, I was just going to read a comment by Greg Wolf about the fact that the translation of Mago on agriculture Mago. into Latin, yeah, after the fall of Carthage, might be a good example of that. And also, you say something interesting. Perhaps it depends on the whether we consider Greek knowledge appropriate. Appropriated, sorry, appropriated by Pliny in that context. So somehow there is also the use of. Yeah, but they are very bookish people. When it's it's concerned some some information, oral information, we don't have interest in Pliny, for instance. Never. It's it's only books. And also the library of of Mithridates, uh, who who was a poison king. And it, it was uh, a huge um, bookshelf of 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 his of his library, which was brought in in Rome after the defeat of defeat of the discipline also. Libraries, always libraries, books. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, um, I think you know it's already. Six o'clock. It's almost time to 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 close everything, to wrap everything up. If there is any other comments or question, please come up now. Otherwise, I will just like wanted to to thank all the speakers again. It was a really really great session. I mean, I think I really really enjoyed it at least. And um, I think you know there is really scope to go on and move. You know, and probably expand some of these themes in some way or another. And Especially this, 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 this connection between the past and the present when we come to deal with problem that we are actually facing now every day. And so, wait, wait a second, maybe yeah, there is just a thank you so <laughs> from the audience again. So I think everybody was really um, enthusiastic about the, 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 the way, you know, some of the stuff that we discussed and some of the stuff that you discussed in the presentation could be easily linked to. Uh, the main theme of the conference, which is something that is not like that um, simple to achieve. So I would like just to thank you again for, for your great job. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.